He's risen. He's risen. We can't say it too many times, right? How exciting is this? Uh, yeah. Happy Easter, everybody. Thank, <laughs> thanks for joining us on Resurrection Sunday to celebrate together the resurrection of our Savior. Missing this last year, especially, uh, this just warms my soul, <laughs> being here together with everybody to worship our Savior and to praise him for rising from the dead. So thank you for joining us. We're so glad that you're here. We have been in a series, or series, campaign. We're calling them campaigns now. Uh, we've been in a campaign called Pray Like Jesus. And the basic idea of this is super simple. It's our prayer life should look like Jesus' prayer life. Um, the old WWJD bracelets, right? No, I've, I've asked before, and nobody has raised, raised their hand and said they still wear them. Um, but that's the, that's the basic idea, is like, what would Jesus do? So when it comes to prayer, prayer can feel pretty intimidating sometimes, right? Like, how do we pray? Some of us grew up with traditional prayers that we just say the same prayers over and over again, and they feel a little bit rote, kind of like the same thing. It doesn't have a lot of heart behind it. Um, but sometimes when we do, like abandon those prayers, now we're like, now what do we say? So prayer can be kind of a difficult thing for us sometimes. How often do we pray? What postures do we pray? All of this stuff. That's what we're exploring in this campaign. It's just how would Jesus pray? And just simply walking through the Gospels and looking at a few instances of Jesus' prayer life to say, hey, maybe we can take some pointers from the author and perfecter of our faith and how we should pray. And so we should pray like him. So very, very simple ideas about prayer and how we should pray. We're going to continue that today. Uh, we've looked at how the beginning of Jesus' prayer life and his ministry, it wasn't even him praying. It was the Father speaking to him and telling him who he is and how important it is that we know who we are to God. So at Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks to Jesus that he is his son, that he loves him, and he is pleased with him. That's super, super important. Then we see in Jesus' prayer life that he often seeks out solitude and quiet and times alone to pray and to be with God. We went through the Lord's Prayer, and then last week we went through the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' suffering and pain and agony as he prays to God. Today, we are going to look at the high priestly prayer of Jesus, what's commonly known as the high priestly prayer. It's in John 17. Now, this, we'd have to like even rewind a couple, uh, a couple of hours from uh, the Good Friday, okay, from the crucifixion. We'd have to rewind a little bit in the storyline, in the timeline, to Jesus and the Last Supper. So this is a, a very intimate time with Jesus and his disciples. They're together, in the, and, and they're celebrating the Passover meal together. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They... Uh, talk through, Jesus talks through how he's leaving in the farewell discourse, and they all get kind of freaked out. And Jesus says, hey, it's okay. I'm leaving, but I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. So it's actually better for you that I go. And Jesus says, you guys know the way to get to where I'm going. Like, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way? Just these really good conversations all throughout the farewell discourse. And then at the end of it, Jesus prays. Jesus prays. This shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would pray. Right? These, these intimate, these significant moments in Jesus' life, he almost always prays. And he goes right to prayer. Communication with 
the Father. So he's going to pray for himself. We're going to focus on that aspect of it today. Then he's going to pray for his disciples. And then he's going to pray for those who will believe his disciples' message, that being the church. Now we're not going to get through all of it today because it's a lot, (laughs) and there's a lot of good themes in there and a lot of stuff for us to pull out on prayer and how we should pray, and also how Jesus is praying for us. So today we're just going to focus on the resurrection themes in the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays. So, let's go. John 17, starting here in verse 1 says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, that's everything he said in the farewell discourse, essentially, the last like three chapters. When he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, okay, you guys should be seeing this theme repeated time and time again. When Jesus begins praying, he begins praying how he taught us to pray. Father, okay? And then in our prayer on Good Friday, we saw him say, my God, my God, okay, emphasizing the distance between him and the Father in that moment. But when Jesus prays, he prays Father, just like he taught us to do in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? So when Jesus prays, he says, Father, the hour has come. Okay, the hour throughout John's gospel is pointing ahead to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And John views these as like one big event, okay? So how we look at that, it's not... We can parse them out into three separate events, but in John's thinking and as he's writing this and as Jesus is articulating here, these are one event. event. We have to view them all together. And these are the climactic events of Jesus' life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And he speaks of it as the hour has come, meaning that this has always been God's plan. This is always how God was planning. This is always what God was moving towards in his divine sovereignty for the life of Christ. The hour has come. He knows he's going to the cross. He says, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Okay, all flesh is just uh, another way of saying all humanity. And glorify is one of those words that we don't use very much today. The way I explain it to my kids is just make, make God look awesome, right? <laughs> make somebody look awesome. Increase their reputation. Make them look great. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Okay, Jesus is going to say that to all whom you have given him a few times throughout this prayer. We will talk about that next week. Oops, we skipped a few. Okay, three and four. And this is eternal life, that they know you. Okay, so Jesus says he's giving them eternal life. And he says to eternal life, what is that? That they know you. Okay, that they know the Father. When Jesus says that they know the Father, they know you, know is, it, it, it's a little bit deeper than what we would just say as know now. It's just not head knowledge. Know, especially in ancient Hebrew culture, implied a a deeper knowledge of, like an experiential knowledge of somebody. It it meant things like fellowship, trust, faith, personal relationship. Relationship gets at it the most. When you know somebody, you you relate to them. You're, You're familiar with them, and not just in a theoretical sense, but in an experiential sense as well. I should probably clarify too. So how, if you're not familiar with how we've been doing our structuring our church service lately, I'm going to go through the text first. I'm going to preach it. 
Okay, and or I'm going to teach what the text says, and then I'll come back up later and apply it. If you're like, man, he's not applying any of this. What's going on? I'll get there, okay? This guy really stinks at his job. I might, but I'll get to that stuff later. All right. <laughs> so we're going to get through the, the heady stuff first. Okay, so where was I? That they may know you, the only true God. Okay, God is the only true God. There is no other God like him. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There he's praying for himself again. So note how Jesus prays for himself. He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The work that Jesus had to do was everything, I think, throughout his whole life and ministry. Revealing the kingdom of God, showing them uh, the world, what the kingdom of God was like. And ultimately, revealing them, re revealing to his disciples and others who believed in him, who he is, the way to the Father, how to live this new kind of life that Jesus is bringing to the world. He says, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Ultimately, he's pointing ahead to his resurrection, to his death, resurrection, and ascension. That's the work that Jesus has to do. So again, the fact that he can say that as accomplished already, he, he is fully confident that God is working this out, that God's plan will be accomplished, his will will be done, that he has fully submitted to the will of the Father. He can even speak of his death, resurrection, and ascension as accomplished already. And then in verse 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay, here he's pointing back to the fact that he is the eternally existent Son, that he is the second person of the Trinity, he is God in flesh. This goes back to what John has already said earlier in his gospel in John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word is referring to Jesus. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in John 1, 14, in a couple of campaigns prior to this, we talked about this at length, where he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so this is towards the end of the book. That's at the very beginning of the book. You should see the themes, okay? Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity in flesh who came to dwell with us and to show us his glory. And in showing us his glory, he is showing us the glory of the Father. And ultimately in the resurrection, we, we see Jesus' glory, Right? In the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples, when they see him, we see his glorious, they see his glorious state. In part. It's not the fullness of it. So seeing the fullness of Jesus' glory would probably have killed them. But what we do notice is that after his resurrection, some of his closest followers don't recognize him. Right? We notice that he like appears in locked rooms <laughs> and just shows up. He like appears and disappears. So who knows, right? That's a part of his glory. All right, now we're going to fast forward to verse 13. Okay, I told you we're not going through all of this. Now he's praying for his disciples, his immediate, his immediate disciples, and we're going to hone in on another one of these resurrection themes. He says, but now I am coming to you. Again, he's about to die rise from the dead, and ascend to the Father. He had, these things haven't happened yet, but he's confident that they will. He knows they're coming. I'm coming to you, the Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Okay? 
So Jesus prays for his disciples, and here he prays for them to have his joy. His joy fulfilled the fullness of his joy in themselves. Think about what Jesus is about to experience. Think about what's all about to happen. This is at the Passover meal, at the Lord's Supper, before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays, and he asks his disciples to pray with him, and his three closest can't, okay? This is where, as soon as the soldiers come to arrest him, all of his disciples up in bail. This is where he's left completely abandoned by everybody in his life. This is before uh, Peter disowns him three times. Okay. And here he prays for them to have his joy. When I think about what I would pray in that moment, right? I pray something more like, God, help these guys. I don't think they can do this. <laughs> God, Peter has shown me nothing throughout his, my three years with him that indicates that he is capable of accomplishing the tasks I'm going to give him. Help this dude not to mess up everything I've started, right? Help all of these guys not to ruin this. Jesus doesn't pray that. Instead, he prays for them to have his joy, and not just a part of his joy, but the fullness of his joy. Then next, going on to verse 24, this is where he's praying for the church and everybody who will believe on his, believe the message that his disciples share. It says, Father, I desire that they also, meaning all who will believe, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. So he says already, he's going to the Father, and he wants them to be with him, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Band, you guys can come up and get set. So here we see Jesus praying for himself, praying for the Father to be glorified by glorifying the Son. And then we see him praying for his disciples, for his disciples to experience the fullness of his joy. And ultimately, they would <laughs> imagine walking through this weekend, walking through the death of Jesus, thinking of this prayer, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, and be like, joy? Like imagine yesterday, what joy are you talking about? He's dead, we're afraid for our lives, he got brutally murdered, what joy was Jesus talking about? He's pointing ahead to the resurrection and the ascension. And then he prays for the church, and he prays for the church that they would be with him. I'll come up and apply this later, but these are beautiful, absolutely beautiful truths of the resurrection. Not only how we should pray like Jesus, but how Jesus prays for us and is still praying for us. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, Jesus, we thank you, God. We thank you so much for rising from the dead. We thank you for praying for us. We thank you for saying these things. Lord, that we can know that you want us to have your joy. That Jesus, you did glorify the Father. As Father, you glorified Jesus in the resurrection. Lord, we thank you that you want us to be with you. Lord, some of these thoughts are too overwhelming for us. So Lord, as we worship you now, be honored and glorified in our praises. Yeah, Jesus, we long for the day when we will sing your praises forevermore. Help us practice now. Lord, this is practice for when we get to praise your name forever and ever in perfect harmony with you in your presence, Lord, worshiping you.
And Jesus, when we will see you face to face and see your glory in its fullness, Lord. God, we long for that day. Our hearts ache within us to see you, to be with you, and to dwell in your presence forever and ever. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Ooh, man. I'm not supposed to cry on Easter Sunday. I'm supposed to cry on Good Friday. Get all my tears out over the weekend, and apparently I did not empty the vat of tears. So, I'm going to do my best to not cry the rest of this, but we'll see where we go. Okay. Here's... My one goal today, you guys, is to is to simply make Jesus look more glorious for you. In fact, that's our whole goal on Sunday morning church. That's why we sing. That's why we gather together. That's why I preach. That's why we look at scripture. That's why we encourage one another. We want Jesus to look more and more glorious to you. Every week and every day, that should be our heart's cry. And I I can say this with confidence that The glory of Jesus is too small in your perspective. When you think of the glory of Jesus, it's too small. And I can say that with confidence because I know it is true in my own life. That every year, as I grow closer and closer in my relationship with Jesus, his glory looks more and more magnificent and more glorious. And I can say with confidence that our concept of his glory is too small. And it should be our heart's desire to see more and more and more of his glory until we will see it in full with him. Okay, a couple of application points. When we're talking about how we should pray like Jesus, first and foremost, we should pray to be God, for God to be glorified in us just like Jesus did. Again, that means that we should pray for God to look awesome in our lives and through our lives. And for us, that means we should make Jesus look awesome (laughs) in our life. How we live, how we speak, how we do our work, how we spend our finances, everything that we do in our life should be to make Jesus look more and more awesome. That's what we mean when we pray for God to be glorified in us. So just like Jesus was praying for the Father to glorify him, that he might glorify the Father, and ultimately his resurrection glorified God in just amazing ways, right? That should be our prayer. It's like a mirror. We should be like a mirror for God's glory. We don't take any glory for ourselves. Instead, we reflect the glory of God to the world around us. So the questions that I think we should be asking ourselves is, does, does, in, the, in the ways that I live my life, am I making God look awesome? Am I walking, in the words of Paul, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Again, are we, are we praying like Jesus prayed and making God look awesome in our prayer life? Are we caring for the poor like Jesus cared for the poor and the marginalized and the weak and the outcast? Are we speaking truth like Jesus spoke truth? Are we living in truth in our own 
minds? Are we committed to the truth in ourselves? Are we doing things like the hard ethical teachings of Jesus, like loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us? Are we forgiving like Jesus forgave? Remember Jesus hanging on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Are we, that type of life makes Jesus look awesome. When we live a life like Jesus, we make him look great. And it's hard to do. But when we live that kind of life, it's not about making us look awesome. It's about making Jesus look awesome. So, pray that very dangerous prayer. (laughs) God, be glorified in my life. And what you're praying is that you won't accept any credit, any respect, glory for yourself, but it all goes to God. Like a mirror, you're glorifying him. So ask yourself, is the way you are living your life make you look awesome or Jesus look awesome? That's what we mean when we're praying for God to glorify us so that we might glorify him. Then next, let's just take some comfort in some of the ways that Jesus is praying for his followers. Some of the ways that Jesus is praying and interceding for us. First, Jesus wants his followers to have his joy. (laughs) Again, ultimately pointing to the resurrection where we can experience this joy that Jesus has and that Jesus wanted to give to his disciples. So if you notice the language of how Jesus says this, he says that he wants them to have his joy and then it would be full in them. What that means is, is quite simple, that this joy is sourced in Jesus. It's found in him. He is the source of our joy. He's the ultimate source of our joy. What that does mean is the ultimate source of your joy is not your spouse. Or if you're single, your future spouse, perhaps, if you would want to be married. The ultimate source of your joy is not a better paying job. The ultimate source of your joy is not your children. It's not a bigger house, it is not a better car. (laughs) Even if your car is like breaking down, (laughs) it doesn't run, right? That is not the ultimate source of your joy. Some of those things may bring you joy, but it is not ultimately where your joy is found. Your joy is ultimately found in Jesus. It is in Christ. And when we are abiding in Christ, as he says a couple chapters earlier in chapter 15, then we will have his joy when we are relating to Jesus and living life with him. What that also means is that you will never find fullness of joy until you find it in Jesus. You may have found joy in some other little things and small pieces of goodness within creation that bring you joy, but your joy will not be full until it is found in Jesus. In the devotional, I linked you to a Gospel Coalition article where Melissa Kruger, she writes, your desire for joy is ultimately a desire for Jesus. Think about that. That's good. (laughs) 
What Jesus is saying here is if your desire for joy, the, the craving that you have for joy, ultimately that is pointing you to Jesus. And until you find it in Jesus, your joy will never be full. And it will never be fulfilled. And the beauty of this prayer is that Jesus wants you to have the fullness of his joy. He wants you to experience life and experience life to the full. And it's found in him and in nobody else and in nothing else. The lies of our culture are that you can find fullness of joy in consumerism and more and more stuff and more and more success and wealth and all of this other stuff. You may find some joy, but you will not find fullness of joy until you find it in Jesus. And then, here's another beautiful truth. <laughs> that Jesus wants his followers to be with him. This is profound. It's so simple, but it's absolutely profound. Think about this. God has existed as a trinity. One God and three persons in perfect harmony for all eternity. God was not lonely ever. <laughs> He has existed in perfect, loving relationship for all eternity. So God didn't create the universe because he was lonely. Yet, he wants those who believe in him to be with him. Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, wants you to be with him. Skagitani wrote this little, this little book. I, it's on my Kindle, so I'm not going to hold it up. That's an iPad. That doesn't <laughs> really ruins the illustration. But he wrote this little book called With, and I'm working through it now. And the concept of the book is so simple. He goes through these four different postures of how we tend to relate to God. And as I'm going through these, some of these are going to connect with you. You're going to be like, okay, that's how I primarily tend to relate to God. He says first, under God, where we follow all the rules or else God will be mad at you. In this concept, God is like an angry overlord that if you step outside of the bounds of his rules, you're going to get zapped with a lightning bolt or God is really mad at you. Make sure you're doing right and everything right or wrong or God will not bless you. You're trying to just be righteous and do the right things so that God will grow your business or so that you can get more stuff, right? Hoping that God will then bless you. Life over God, he says, is, is when you act as if you don't need anything from God. You act as if God doesn't exist. You may even say, like, yeah, I believe in God, but then God has little to no actual effect on the daily affairs of your life. You don't talk to him, you don't relate to him, nothing. He's like the deistic God who's just out there doing his own thing while you're doing yours. You'll figure it out on your own. God has no bearing on your daily existence. And he says some of us have this concept of life from God, that God exists just to supply all of our needs and desires. <laughs> and so all you're looking for from God is just more stuff or... Whatever you want. 
Now, in all these, there's some truth, right? Especially in this one. All the good things from we have come from God. We are dependent upon God. And life under God, there's some truth in that, right? That God is greater than us, right? At the very basic level. The fourth one is life for God. Where you're, and this is, if, if you're, this was me, right? This was my misconcept about God, misconception about God, is it's all about the mission of God. We can change the world for Christ. We grew up in the church. This is likely your primary. We use God to just gain a sense of direction and purpose. Again, true to a degree. It is important. The mission of God is important in the world. But that is not our primary way that we relate to God. And then the fifth one. He says we should have this concept of life with God. And he goes through the whole story of Scripture and how it's all about, in the garden, God walking with us in the cool of the day, walking with humanity. At the end of the book, in Revelation, God makes his dwelling place with us, and we are with him forevermore. So there may be truth in all those other understandings of how we relate to God under, over, from, and for God. There's truth there. But ultimately, I think our foundation must be to relate to God that God just wants to be with us, and we should just want to be with him. Because all those other postures, we're trying to use God for our own benefit in some way, shape, or form. But with God, the end goal is God. Right? The other postures is stuff from God or certain benefits that God may give us. With God, the end goal is God. John Piper said it really well and very convicting (laughs) the way he says this. Listen to this. He said, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. This line is haunting. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. Hear that. People who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. Think, how do you imagine heaven? If, if it's not centered around Jesus and seeing his face as we just sang... You have a misconception about heaven and eternity. You may be trying to use God with one of these other postures. The joy of heaven, the beauty of the new creation will be God's presence and Jesus and seeing his glory and being with him more and more. He goes on, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. The end goal is always God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. Those are strong words, but I think he's right. The end goal must be God. It must always be God. It must always be to be with him and with Jesus. Remember what Jesus said as he was praying for himself in John 17. He said, eternal life is to know God. 
and to know Jesus. So eternal life is to relate, to love, cherish, be with Jesus and God. Abide in him, trust him, love him, desire to be with him, desire him. That's eternal life, is to be with him. It's not just about getting what we want. Finally, Jesus wants his followers to see the fullness of his glory. This There are a number of moments throughout Scripture that we go through in the devotional where people see small portions of God's glory. And every time, it is completely overwhelming for them. Isaiah cries, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. God has to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock and only see his back, whatever that means, because God's glory is too great. And then John, the guy who wrote the gospel of which we're reading in John 17, he writes in Revelation 1, 9, and I'm going to leave you with this. The beginning of the book of Revelation, he writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. He was exiled there to live out the rest of his days alone on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit, means praying, on the Lord's day, that would be Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, ooh, where'd it go? <laughs> in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head, hear this, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Oops. <laughs> From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Think of that. You're going to go outside on a sunny day, and when you walk out in the lobby, it's going to be like, ah, oh, right? That's Jesus. That's Jesus' face as much as John could handle. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The glory of Jesus was too much for John. He falls at his feet as though dead because the glory of God is so overwhelming. But, listen to this, you, just imagine this, okay? John's falling, he fell at his face as though he was dead. But he laid his right hand on me. John's fallen flat, prostrate on his face. How would Jesus lay his right hand on him? Except to bend down to him. The, the glory that he just described and the power and the majesty in Jesus. The guy's holding stars in his hands. His face is shining like the sun. He's awesome and so powerful. Yet, he will bend down to lift up the face of John. That's Jesus. 
That is our Savior. Ultimate power, authority, control over the universe, yet he will bend down to lift up one of his followers who's just getting a glimpse of his glory. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Why don't you just close your eyes and imagine that scene that John just described. Imagine the face of Jesus and seeing him in his glory. <laughs> and the awe and the wonder and the, just the majesty that that is. And then we're going to sing one more song together. <laughs>